across the board. Learning from safeguarding adults boards. You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello and welcome to Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast. This mini-series of podcasts is part of the 39 Essex Public Law Podcast. In this series, we look at how safeguarding is developing not only here at home, but around the world. We look at safeguarding adults as well as children, and we explore safeguarding in different settings. I'm your host, Ian Brownhill, and today I'm joined in the studio with Fran Pearson. Fran is a long-standing independent chair of Safeguarding Adults Boards in England and has worked in places as different as the London Borough of Newham and Rutland. She's an independent reviewer, carrying out Safeguarding Adult Reviews under Section 44 of the Care Act, and she sees these roles as a privilege and is constantly trying to be innovative and promote good governance. In her previous life, Fran has been both a social worker, a social work manager, an NHS commissioning manager for older adults, and even as a Labour councillor and member of the Mayor's Cabinet in Hackney. She told me that was a steep and fascinating learning curve. And she's worked as the Head of Community Engagement and Community Health Development in the NHS Primary Care Trust. So Fran, starting today about you and your life in safeguarding, tell us about a little bit about what you're doing now. Thanks, Ian. Um, at the moment, I'm chairing a number of safeguarding adults boards and um, I'm taking a short break from carrying out safeguarding adults reviews. But um, in the past, I've kind of done both things in parallel. Now, safeguarding adult boards are a, well, it seems like a relatively recent creation. Of course, they're not that recent a creation. They've been around for a while now. Can you tell the listener who's joining us today what a safeguarding adults board actually is? Thank you. Well, as you say, it's extraordinary to think that it was the Care Act 2014 and we implemented in 2015. So mm. seven years on, um, Safeguarding Adults Board has its basis in law, uh, in statute, and it has to carry out three things. So um, it has to publish an annual report setting mm-hmm. out its its strategy. It has to kind of overview and uh, kind of scrutinise, understand Uh, and bring together all the partner organisations, and perhaps we can talk a bit more about what that actually means, um, Mm. in a a local area, usually a local authority footprint. And um, it also has a duty under Section 44 of the Care Act to consider potential cases that could become a safeguarding adults review. And there are specific criteria that inform that kind of decision making just from the starting point and from my own experience the people who sit around the table of a safeguarding adults board tends to vary from place to place in my experience who, who do you think should be around the table well that's a good point it does vary i think the statutory guidance the care and support guidance has a lovely phrase about the safeguarding adults board should be greater than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. So maybe some of that regional variation is a kind of nod to um, trying to create that. I think I think the reality is that what what safeguarding adults boards as partnerships kind of juggle is responding to their kind of legal position, but also finding the best fit for any local area. Okay. So I would expect variation in some types of members. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be around kind of community organisations, 
you know, do you have people who represent carers or do you have carers themselves? Mm-hmm. Do you have people with lived experience of safeguarding, uh, being being protected, or do you have an organisation that speaks for them? And I think those are the kind of local dilemmas that might mean you get some variation. The sort of things I'd expect to see as standard, although, you know, I know there is variation, Really, the bottom line is whoever comes to that board has to be able to make change and speak mm-hmm. with authority on behalf of their organisation. And I think that's where things occasionally get a bit shaky. Um, that There can be downward delegation. Sometimes safeguarding adults boards are in direct, direct competition with things to do with protecting children. Yep. Um, and I think they tend to be the poor relation for, for understandable reasons. I think that's changing. Um, and I think there's high levels of commitment. I also think, you know, you can't talk about safeguarding adults at the moment without referencing the impact of the pandemic. Of course. So, you know, people being drawn out of boards, you know, um, clear guidance from bodies like, you know, NHS England about what professionals had to prioritise. Yes. Uh, meant that, you know, um, things altered. And that was both a kind of threat and an opportunity, I think. Um, you know, I think some organisations get it right in terms of representation. And as a SAB chair, it's like, I don't know if people uh, still recognise the concept of painting the fourth bridge, but it's like you constantly are reviewing your membership. Mm-hmm. And I do spend a certain amount of my life in meetings of people saying, you know, um, let's just talk about your contribution to the SAB. Again, I don't want to be controversial, put you into a difficult position, but one of my other experiences has been that SAB chairs, who they are and their approach has varied hugely from place to place as well. Presumably that's been your experience too, because I know that SAB chairs don't sort of sit alone. They they talk to one another. Yeah, I think that's, you know... it depends hugely on personal style. And I think quite often safeguarding adults boards, the kind of key partners or whoever's on interview panels will have an idea about recruiting for fit with mm-hmm. how they function and what they want to do. Probably the greatest cliche under the sun is that we want to, you know, we want to employ somebody who will, you know, challenge us. Mm. Once you try to actually do that, you then find that the people who are recruiting you on the basis of your ability to do that may not be so comfortable with the outcome. Mm. So, you know, I think I think that's part of it. I think, you know, I've done more interviews as a safe, you know, for roles as a safeguarding adults board chair than I tend to remember. And um, you know, each have taken very different approaches. And it, it very depends, much depends, you know, and sometimes who in positions of seniority is involved in the yep. process. And I think it's incredibly strong and powerful to have the local, you know, local authority chief executive, you know, very much part of that. It shows a commitment. Of course. Um, but also these people will have an idea about what's going to work for them. And that's not a bad thing. You know, you can't, you know, I, I chair in two adjoining London boroughs. As a chair, you can't have a uniform style. You go with place-based, you know. Uh, so... I think that's really important. Uh, I can say a bit more uh, about the network of safeguarding adults board chairs and why we've kind of looked at our purpose and function over the years. 
But part of that is to bring together a group of people who, you know, perhaps in terms of, you know, background, have certain things in common. But what we do have in common is that, you know, we're passionate about adult safeguarding. And actually, we believe totally in what the Care and Support Statutory Guidance says, which is it's the responsibility of a subchair to keep yourself up to date. Um, I think there are people who don't interface with our network and, you know, we might just be saying what's going on in those boards. So we have a partial overview and I think are a huge source of support um, and development and kind of sharing of best practice. But it is only a partial overview because we're a self-organising group and you don't have to go to it. Yes, it's, it's always struck me as a slightly odd scenario where the local authority essentially appoints the SAB chair. There isn't a sort of overarching national body which you have to be a member of that regulates you in any way. And it's always struck me as being perhaps unusual, perhaps not surprising, uh, but at least there is a, a network out there for you to work with. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's more... It, the network's kind of taking shape and we've been doing a lot of thinking because I'm still part of the executive group. I've previously been a convener of the network and it constantly grows and examines its mm. purpose. Uh, and I think at the moment, the conversations are very much about, you know, we've, we've gone hugely forward in becoming a cohesive body that has regular meetings with, you know, representatives of government departments very much came to the fore during the pandemic. And, you know, our current conveners really promote that greatly on our behalf. But, you know, we we also want to be able to show that collectively our work is improving our own standards and sharing best practice. Yeah. And that, you know, we are challenging, you know, that we we sort of mull over how do you, you know, how do you make decision-making as good as possible around safeguarding adults review we have you know really good product called the rough guide um to safeguarding adults reviews which um some colleagues worked on a few years ago but at, at the end of the day that the, there are great mysteries really around accountability of safeguarding <laughs> adults board chairs it, it's a subject that fascinates <laughs> me because you know um in two places where i work i have an appraisal every year Okay, that that's interesting. I didn't know that. That's like, interesting. In one place, it's almost literally based on a local authority kind of, off, you know, kind of senior office, mid, middle ranking officer kind of thing. And right. I'm set objectives. <laughs> and, that, you know, we, we, we work through what we're going to do, but I have to meet them. Um, and I think, I think the, you know, the bone of contention and I think, you know, some places I work quite, quite cherry of going down this route because they say, well, you know, well, why can't we just have a kind of nice, open, honest conversation once a year, which I think is a very good, very good solution. Of course. But, you know, you have to find different ways and, and accountability is a two-way street. So I think I've probably in my life lived through every version of something called a Safeguarding Adults Board Executive. Yeah. And, you know, it can be, to my mind, actually it needs to be the three statutory partners. So the most senior person from the police with accountability for safeguarding, or as they call it, public protection, the most you know, senior person from um, the local NHS uh, integrated care board mm -hmm. uh, as of the 1st of July. Absolutely. And, and the most senior relevant person from the local authority. Because I think between them, they can really shape and drive things. 
But, um, you know, I, so I prefer to couch things in those terms. Executives can, though, extend to include, you know, the chief executive of the local authority, lead members. I don't think there's a right or wrong version, but I think there are different ways we need to come together behind the scenes and do different forms of accountability. And I, you know, as, as you, you know, you said in your introduction to me, and I've told you, I believe it's a privilege to be in this role. Mm. I take it really seriously, but I also wonder if having objectives and spending a day and a half writing a report because, you know, you don't want to write a shoddy report on your achievements is a good use of time. But, you know, I'd have more confidence in that process than no process. And I don't know what lies in between. But we do a survey periodically um, mm. as the Sabchairs Network and people do get asked questions around, you know, what is the norm? How does this happen? Um, you know, who comes to your board? What do you think are the biggest issues? So uh, the networks had a pretty good response rate on that this time around. Um, and, it, you know, it, it helps form the basis of conversations about where do we go next and where, where do we need to kind of focus our energy? Let's talk for a moment then about reviews and what a safeguarding adult review is. Because again, you know, I'm going to be honest about this and I'm going to be open about it. My experience of SARS has varied from place to place. Working with professionals in court cases... I've been shocked on a number of occasions when people have looked at me when I've mentioned the word SAR or the acronym SAR rather, and people look confused. So uh, for, the, for the person joining us today, listening to what we're talking about, Fran, what's a SAR um, and, and why do people still not know what they are? <laughs> Sorry okay. to ask that question. No, no, no. I'm really hesitant to say in front of you, Ian, oh, it's set out <laughs> in law as, and then attempt to unpick the the forearms of the care act but i mean what i would say is when i make decisions um around safeguarding adults reviews and if a legal advisor isn't present um i think everywhere we now have them Mm. because i think it's really helpful to have somebody um to just step back from a decision and talk us through the forearms of section 44 Mm -hmm. so that people are really clear and have really really clearly recorded decisions so I wonder if some of what worries you about SARS is variable decision-making. Uh, and we'll talk, I guess, in a minute about how you get to that decision and why some and why not others. But um, Section 44 of the Care Act sets out conditions under which you have to do a safeguarding adults review. Yep. But I guess sitting behind that all the time is the thing of the non-mandatory SAR. So essentially it then goes mm. on to say if these criteria haven't been met, and I'll try and go through them now. So it's around an adult who has care and support needs, because that's the kind of the whole Care Act framework. If they have died or been seriously harmed or suffered from neglect, then there's an if and an and, which I'll probably get in the wrong order. But if there um, is kind of a suspicion, I think is the word, that um, abuse or neglect may have contributed or to their death. And if there is reason to be concerned about the way that multi-agency partners of the SAB have worked together, then you get into the territory of a mandatory safeguarding adults review. And that mm. hasn't adequately covered the ifs and ands and the you know combined criteria that you have to achieve. Uh, so basically, in, in you know, I would say in layperson's language, if I was trying to explain a SAR to somebody, I would say 
sometimes things happen so bad that are so serious mm. that we so need to learn from. We have such a responsibility to do the learning that um, we are, law tells us we have to and we can't get out of it. And there are good reasons why we should embrace that. So in terms of the trigger, we've talked about the trigger in section 44, ASAR happens. Now, again, this is the next point of contention. What is ASAR? Once the duty is triggered, what, what does the review actually mean? What is it supposed to look like? Yeah, well, that, that's interesting. Um, the, the statutory guidance has its moments around this because I look at it quite a lot. Essentially, it's about learning. And I think this is kind of the, the thing on what, you know, on which a lot hangs. But safeguarding adults boards have to shape a review mm. so that they're the maximum opportunities for learning. They are meant to involve families mm. or if the adult has not died, the adult themselves and to find ways to do that and provide an advocate to do it. And then they're meant to come up with a methodology that kind of, I was about to say cuts to the chase, but the whole, you know, whole crux of what I probably want to talk about is why it rarely does cut to the chase yeah. and takes way too long. I'm meant to get somebody independent in who can kind of overview what's happened pull together information and make some recommendations about mm. how to improve practice. And it's not meant to overlap with certain other processes, but ultimately it's meant to be a vehicle for learning, uh, not blaming. Yes. I suppose that's, that's one of the things that we need to talk about is the culture of a SAR and what the culture of a SAR should be. And you said about learning and not blaming. So it must be quite difficult when you've got multi-agencies, something negative has happened to a vulnerable adult and they all have to talk about what went wrong. So there must be some temptation at that stage for people to look at each other and go, well, actually, if you'd done this better, this wouldn't have happened. Or if, if you'd done this differently, we would have had a different outcome. How do you tackle that? Well, some of that I think would flow from the culture of the Safeguarding Adults Board itself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can get a heads up as a sub-chair if there's, what the multi, what the what the tensions between agencies are, okay. um, and I think there are ways to do work on those. Um, in terms of reviews themselves, I think there's something about involving all the right people in the process from the outset. Mm. The things that generally cause reviews to sort of topple over, and I have to go on a sort of diplomatic shuttle, <laughs> tend to be, you know, non-ownership of the terms of reference. Yeah. So I think it's really critical to get your terms of reference right. And be really clear about what you want to establish. It's not, it's not a fishing mission to try and figure out who let who down. Mm. It's a serious uh, and well-intentioned attempt to look and kind of rather than describe, I would say, look at kind of uh, the deeper things behind what went wrong. Mm. Um, and I think that that kind of, you know, no, we don't want a report that just tells us what happened. We want to try and look at, you know, systems and how systems help and hinder people. I'm, I'm an enthusiast of taking a kind of systems approach. Mm. Sometimes you can bring people in, um, bring people to the table around that. Um, and I think that begins to move it out of the area of blame. You know, if there's poor professional practice, we need to name it. Yeah. But it can, it can create a bridge. I think, you know, the other thing is senior leaders are committed to individuals and, and feel perhaps, you know, levels of 
remorse and wanting to resolve things and mm. make things better. Perhaps public might not necessarily perceive as being there, but I think, you know, if you have good, you know, good transparent leaders of organisations and their organisations have, a, you know, a culture of transparency, you're onto a good thing when you try to learn because everybody wants to do so. And I think that's that's the kind of, that's the environment. If you don't work, you don't have it, you need to try and build it up. If you can't get people to the table, there are provisions within the CARE Act to mm. ask for information. I think I've only once ever had to edge close. I've had to remind somebody, I think, once that the CARE Act says you need to do this. Yeah. But I think there are also kind of, you know, tactics. So be clear about your methodology. Don't spend ages over it if you can avoid it because the world moves on. And I think there's a whole relevance problem as well. You spend so long doing a review sometimes that every organization has reorganized or maybe the whole landscape of services has hugely improved or maybe yeah. it's got hugely more fragile. You know, um, rough sleeping services have been, I would say, hugely improved over the last few years, whereas some other services are, are naturally in a really fragile state because of the pandemic. So you need to learn in real time um, and you somehow need to convey to bereaved relatives what, you know, what it is you're doing and that it has meaning because I think probably every relative I've met has said, yeah, what does it mean? Learn lessons. I don't want to hear you're going to learn lessons. Mm. All I want is for what happened to my son, my daughter, my cousin, my brother, my next door neighbour, never to happen to somebody else. The lessons that come out of boards is what we're supposed to be talking about today and we are talking about, but how publicly do we use the lessons learned? So, so if a SAR is completed and there are recommendations contained within it, what do you think should happen to those recommendations? Because we know when a coroner, for example, makes a, a Prevention of Future Deaths report, it's published nationally for everybody to see. They can see what's happened. member of the public can access it. We know that SABs take different views on that point. So what do you think should happen in respect of recommendations, at least, from a SAR? Well, first of all, I think they need to be made public. So yep. the CARE Act essentially says you need to write a safeguarding adults review for publication. And I think publication is a slightly misleading term. It causes huge anxiety with yeah. relatives. Yeah. And what it essentially means is you put it on the board website. Yeah. Um, that is what publication is. So it's visible. But of course, there's a huge amount of work behind the scenes to make sure that recommendations are being followed up. And I think, again, you know, I think SABs maybe struggle sometimes. Uh, it's very interesting if you sort of um, get auditors in and take a look at what we might call, no, no police officer would, but what we might call, you know, what the evidence is we're gathering yeah. that things are, are being done. Yeah, It's very important to think about the quality of that. So, you know, I would say, I mean, there's an example actually in the care and support statutory guidance of, you know, what, what it describes as a very good thing. Um, a domestic homicide review, I think, happens actually in this instance uh, in the good practice box. And um, a community safety partnership and safeguarding adults board come together and design some training. Mm. That That's fantastic. But actually, I think where SAB assurance and messages back and accountability need to be, that's great. 
but we need to know if practice has changed as a result. Exactly. And I think that is what every board struggles with. Some, you know, some are better than others. There's some really good multi-agency audit work going on where, you know, partners come together and trawl over, you know, case records mm. and say, okay, we had a SAR about this last year, mm, not really seeing much flow through or fantastic. We can see that, you know, this group of professionals um, must have been on the training organized by their organization yeah. and they put it into practice with so-and-so. Yeah. Um, so, you know, audit, multi-agency audit is a powerful tool. And I think just thinking about the shaping of agendas at Safeguarding Adults Boards, there's also something about that accountability back to the board, you know, three years mm. down the line, it's, you know, it's a bit like reviewing the membership of a SAB. I don't personally think that recommendations from a review are ever done because, you, you know, you need to keep going back and seeing what the impact is. I mean, it's a, you know, an example of something is, you know, you, you could, I guess there's something about organisational memory and turnover. Yeah. So you could have a fabulous staff group, really good relationships, but all the good practice across agencies hinges on, you know, individual relationships. So we need to be sure that, you know, if everybody retires, leaves, whatever, good practice continues and things won't be lost. And I think, you know, that's that's the role of SABs as well, to, to figure out ways to do that. I see, one of the things that gets me about it is I think that SABs are brilliant and I think that SARS are brilliant and they're a really useful tool. What worries me about it is not only losing the information and the recommendation locally, but who picks up on the trends of what all the different SARS are saying across the country? Because the Home Office looks at deaths and, and compiles death statistics, but it doesn't... Who's looking at all these recommendations that you guys are... are, are and I wouldn't say pumping out, but you know, you're creating recommendations you know, every day, every week. A new recommendation comes out from a new SAB nationally. So who looks at all of them together and says, actually, we've got a national problem here that we need to deal with? It's, I'm really pleased you mentioned that. So a couple of years ago, um, there have been sort of partial reviews okay. of Safeguarding Adults reviews. Okay, I didn't know that. But um, a couple of years ago, uh, Professor Michael Preston Shute and his kind of academic colleagues reviewed two years worth of SARS uh -huh. um, and that formed the basis of a kind of uh, report summarizing trends and themes mm. which has been presented to government departments to kind of say this is what the trends and themes from SARS are telling us what are you going to yep. do about it well actually more like how can we work together on this it's probably more constructive but you know so the work there's work out there there have been some very good analysis um some by Michael Preston Jutton and colleagues, some by sort of King's College London um, okay. research unit around, for example, trends and themes around rough sleepers, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, is, a, is an evolving field and multiple exclusion homelessness. And what there is now accessible to everybody is a national safeguarding adults review library. So mm. I think it's being, it's, it's catalogued thanks to, again, Michael Preston Shute and others, but with the support of the Sabchairs network, it's searchable under certain headings. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could look for fire deaths. And so it's a really helpful tool. I think what we long for, or certainly what I long for, is some of the same kind of 
structures and innovation that there is around children's safeguarding. Yeah. So, you know, working together, uh, the children's guidance uh, was updated in 2018, I think. Mm-hmm. Previously, there's been a kind of national child safeguarding practice review panel. Mm-hmm. There's been overview and they have the ability to sort of pull out trends and themes. So, you know, they've done something around uh, young people dying as a result of knife crime. They've done something around, you know, uh, injuries to non-mobile babies. Mm -hmm. And because it's trend and theme driven, because they pull it out and then they dig deeper into it. At the moment, if sub chairs want to do that, and we do, and we do, you know, we, we either rely on some of our number who are in, have some the research knowledge, or we do it ourselves. Mm. But, you know, it's all a bit DIY. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, the other issue with safeguarding adults reviews is they take so long to do. There was a process developed during the pandemic funded by Department of Health and Social Care called Safeguarding Adults Reviews in Rapid Time, mm-hmm. which was us beginning to think about how can we do things more quickly. But, you know... Ideally, wouldn't it be great? I speak to, you know, I used to be a Safeguarding Children's Partnership chair. I chaired some of the first rapid reviews when mm-hmm. they came in. Wouldn't it be great if we could do those around adults? Perhaps we should just decide we're going to do that so that we can, you know, we can review something quickly and we can say, is there new learning or different learning here? What are the learning points? Do we need to turn it into a large review? Or are we confident? You know, it's about that scale and scope. Mm-hmm. And I don't always think we get scale and scope right. And it's almost sort of my favorite, one of my favorite topics around SARS is, you know, why do we spend so long doing them? Have we, have we really decided? Have we, that's why the terms of reference are so critical. You need to be clear what you want to achieve. Yeah. And if you get that right, you can be quite narrow. You know, there's no reason why you can't scope a SAR around one tragic outcome for somebody on the basis of something you've done before. You know, in our SAR around J, um, we had five findings. One of those was around fluctuating capacity and mm. the need to do advanced planning, say, with, you know, people who have job diagnosis, multiple exclusion, homelessness. So let's focus on that for, you know, somebody else from the rough sleeping community has tragically died. Let's all come together and focus on fluctuating capacity because we began to work on it last time. Let's really crack it now. And that's that's a natural example of yeah. something we're doing somewhere I chair. And I think, you know, it. we were talking somewhere yesterday about, you know, safeguarding adults' reviews, how, you know, they often have recommendations about, you know, more professional curiosity, better communication. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the annoyance of colleagues saying this yesterday but, you know, what we need is reviews written differently because every locality will have different reasons why communication in a particular area doesn't work. Yep. Every Safeguarding Adults Board footprint will have different factors that either support or, st- or you know, hinder the development of professional curiosity. Uh, and I just think we have to get into this kind of laser-like focus on what we want to achieve Mm. and real clarity of purpose about getting behind things. Otherwise, we go over and over again. But I mean, there are some really superb examples of SARS out there. And there is actually now 
Again, another self-organizing body, mm. um, a Safeguarding Adults review, uh, review, Reviewers Network. Okay. So again, that's another way a number of colleagues do other forms of reviewing in that group. So it's an incredibly useful way to look at quality, to look at consistency, to look at trends and themes, to talk about, you know, engaging families. Um, I, I was there a couple of weeks ago talking about the need to develop and recruit people who can carry out safeguarding adults reviews who have different protective characteristics. And mm. I think on that occasion, I was thinking about people from particular black and um, black Caribbean communities yeah. who are not represented at all. I don't think it's not untrue to say that because that was the whole point of me talking to the group about it. And everybody went, yeah, it's true. You know, you haven't missed anything. So, you know, there's, there are things we can do. We need to make reviews meaningful to people. And I think, I think also, you know, if we're writing for publication, we need to be really clear about why we're saying something mm. about an individual mm. and their life. And too often we get to the point of publication and, you know, it's, it's apparent. So perhaps we could, you know, perhaps we could do a summary. And I'm like, why didn't we write this for publication in the first place? Yeah. And, you know, we have a duty to protect people and to protect their identities unless families ask us to be very clear. And, you know, there are reviews in the library which have the name of the actual person. Indeed, yeah. And that's fabulous if you want to do that. But there are also, for a lot of reasons in a lot of parts of the country, there's a lot of stigma and shame mm. around a lot of things. Mm. And we cannot expose families. We can't make difficulties in communities more difficult. Sometimes I think we confuse, you know, a kind of understanding of lived experience with putting in too much personal information. Yeah about somebody into a review, there's not necessarily right or wrong, but there's perhaps a balance to be struck between taking a family's account of their loved one and putting it all in there and having incredibly difficult conversations with families about, you know, my, my view is we, we use data around systems to, to write a review. And then I think it's really powerful to involve families in subsequent work with practitioners Mm. It's very powerful to have families come to safeguarding adults' boards. It's very powerful to send families to terms of reference. Um, mm. And I now try to do that as standard practice if they want to. Uh, you know, there are reasons why they do and there are reasons why they don't. And say, I'm not promising you we're going to change these, but I'd really like you to run your eye over them and say whether they captured the substance of what you think we need to learn about your mother or your father. If you want to know more about safeguarding and 39 Essex, visit us at 39essex.com. If you want to know more about Fran, you can add her on Twitter at Pearson Fran. If you want to connect with us on socials, you can add me on Twitter at Council Tweets. You can add the podcast at Safe underscore Cast. And you can connect with the public law team at 39 Public Law. Join us next time for Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast available where you download your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com. Listener.